Welcome to Barn Blog, where our aim is to give you the best in analysis and philosophy, political economy, history, art, culture, and geopolitics from a left-wing and socialist-friendly perspective. We aim to bring you different perspectives from different walks of life and to have you educate yourself what to do with what you learn here. We do not aim to give you prefabricated and easy answers. Abandon all hope, ye who subscribe here, for you will learn, and it will be your responsibility what you do. And with that, let's begin today's episode. Hello and welcome to Varam Blog. And today we will be talking in about five to ten minutes to Dr. Harun Ilmaz, um, a specialist on nationalism, national identities, and the specific um, history of the national question in the USSR, particularly under Stalin. Um, the national question is not often something we can ignore in socialist history, but its its deep roots aren't obvious to most people studying communism. After all, Marx and Engels' writing on national liberation was inconsistent and rather ad hoc. The the full articulation of the question really comes uh, most clearly articulated actually as late as 1907, um, when the Austrian Marxist Otto Bauer writes social democracy and the question of nationalities. Um, which was then responded to by Rosa Luxemburg um, in uh, 1909, and then by um, Lenin in, I believe, 1913. Um, But the primary text, which more or less settles the question for both, for the Bolsheviks, is Joseph Stalin's answer, um, Marxism and the National Question, uh, in 1913. And Stalin's background comes out of particular Georgian context in trying to parse the question um, as to what he had seen in Georgia. Now, I will let uh, Dr. Yomaz go into this background uh, in more detail, but this also has to be seen in the context of European nationalism. Um, indeed, one of the ironies of the communist movement is going back to 1848, often the socialists and communists were allied with nationalists. Famously, for example, Ricard Wagner and Ingalls fought in the same battles against the Metternich governments. The national question uh, after that point, while not a major focus of Marx and Engels' research, and in fact, Marx would often farm out his writings on geopolitics and nationality to Engels um, specifically. Uh, This has come out in the recent um, Mega 2 research. The letters often indicate that Marx felt uncomfortable on the topic. But nevertheless, nationalists were in the first international as a major coalition. And indeed, different groups sided with nationalists at different times. Furthermore, the definition of nation was not just a debate within 
um, the communist and socialist world, but it was also a debate within the larger European radicalism itself. With the clear nations that we now associate with nation states, Britain and France, seemingly having coherence beyond any theoretical answer, but most of our modern European nations are a product of the 19th and early 20th century. To think, though, that this is just a question for Europe is to severely underestimate the reach of this debate. After all, um, the national question was huge in the dissolution of the Ottoman Empire. It was a major question in decolonization. It was a major debate within um, both popular front tactics um, in East Asia and the development of East Asian national identities, including long historical projects to draw out cultures um, and find cultural continuities um, going back thousands of years, very similar to the European project, which aimed to do the same. And in fact, in a case of out-heriding Herod, one could even see the claim of, say, Han nationalism of the continuity of Han culture going back 6,000 years as a way to solidify the legitimacy of the claim to legitimate nationhood, even within the socialist context. But to understand these debates, we have to know how these different groups actually framed the question of nationality. Often the way we use the terms now, particularly in American and Canadian English, nation and state are synonyms. And the idea of the nation state in the United States indicates that we too make a claim of nationhood, often saying that we are a young nation, even though we are an old constitutional country. But this can be misleading. Often, we don't understand how to read the references to, to nations in even the early 20th century, and definitely not before. And furthermore, it misses the debates in context often key to current decolonization debates. For example, um, one of the key debates in the context of African literature was whether or not not just the colonial language, but whether or not the colonial state, such as Nigeria, was a legitimate concept, being that it was an importation from Europe. Without understanding the specific origins in the prior century, we have a hard time parsing what is going on now, from the situation in Western China to the situation in Kazakhstan to right now as tensions mount up on the border of Ukraine. And indeed, Ukraine may be one of the places where this is one of the most live issues. After all, the historical narrative of the Tsarist Muscovy state traces the nationhood of the Rus to Kiev, not to Muscovy, not to Nagorod. And so Ukrainians' separate identity and the identity of Dumbask, Crimea, etc., is actually a much more contested question than is often understood. And while this should be seen in the context of NATO, NATO and uh, the Russian Federation economic and military competition, the framing of the question goes back to the pre-Soviet and Soviet times. Um, 
we will start off uh, by discussing with Dr. Yamaz, Yamaz, excuse me, um, the uh, the the origins of the definitions of nationality, the debates that led up to Stalin's answer in 1913, and maybe discuss how Stalin was actually able to in, to ethnically sort Eastern and Central Europe in a way no power prior had been able to. And with that, I would like to welcome Dr. Harun Yamaz. Uh, he is the Central Asia Research Forum Series Academic Editor at Ruthledge and Taylor and Francis Group. He's a regional expert on history, national identities, and political propaganda. His popular publications cover Central Asia, Ukraine, very relevant to today, and the Caucasus. Um, he has his PhD from Oxford University and was a senior research fellow at Harvard University in the British Academy and lectured on the history of the Soviet Union under Stalin at Queen Mary's University of London. He's published op-eds for and was interviewed by BBC Azerbaijan, BBC Russia, Al Jazeera, NPR, and News Nation. The book most relevant to our discussion today is National Identities and Soviet Historiography, The Rise of Nations under Stalin. And with that, I'd like to welcome Dr. Yamaz. Hello. Dr. Yamaz, you're muted. Oh, sorry. No problem. <laughs> sorry. Uh, 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 good evening or good afternoon. Uh, thank you very much for the invitation and thank you for very much for the uh, uh, introduction as well. Um, uh, yes. And so, Dr. Uh, Yamaz, why is understanding the Soviet conception of national identity so crucial to understanding? contemporary politics. We'll start from there and work backwards. Um, the, well, the nations, if we, um, if we see them as constructions in the Soviet, uh, in the ex-Soviet territories, um, national identities, including Russian national identity, modern Russian, uh, modern national identities, including Russian, um, they were, um, mostly constructed during the uh, Soviet period uh, because Soviet Union um, was in a way um, a modernization project um, and part of this modernization project was constructing uh, modern national identities. Um, that's one aspect of it. So um, that's why Soviet Soviet period was very formative Um um, even today, after 1991, um, we have 15 independent uh, republics from Ukraine to Russia, Kazakhstan, Tajikistan, and so on. Um, their uh, narratives, I would exclude of probably Baltic uh, region, Baltic, three Baltic states there. But apart from that, the rest, uh, in the rest, um, many building blocks, um, um, building elements of modern uh, national identity construction are still used, are still um, are still in the discourse, are, they are still in the his, 
official uh, history textbooks um, taught in the primary or secondary schools. Um, sometimes, sometimes content changes a little bit. Um, some editions we can see um, that was that were developed after 1991. Um, sometimes uh, some bits um, are not um, um, included, but it, more or less, I mean, they are still um, um, uh, valid. Um, they are still those building blocks are still um, used. Actually, the, this nation building, <clears throat> if it's a process, um, there are more continuities between uh, before be, between before and after 1991 uh, than discontinuities. I would say um, so. It's a process. It's like a a train uh, echelon of wagons, uh, train cars um, moving forward, which started, um, which uh, gained this uh, initial um, started uh, period in the 1920s um, and still continues. That's why Soviet period is uh, important also to understand um, how these uh, national identities um, 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 uh, uh, shaped uh, what we see today partially is also a fruit, a product of Soviet period, yeah. So one question that brings to mind that I'm actually a little, um, I think some of my listeners might find surprising is that Russian identity is part of the Soviet project. Uh, true. Um, uh, we are, of course, talking about modern uh, national identities here. Uh, what does that mean? Um um historians or nation builders um this is a construction the constructivist um, approach to national identity which uh, um uh, uh, Hobsbawm, um um gellner um, and some other um author theoricians also uh, developed this in the last uh, 20 30 years um well, actually, probably a bit more than 30 years now. Uh, <laughs> uh, so um, they um, uh, developed this um, approach, um, which uh, contradicts, uh, which is a, which opposes the primordialist approach to national identity and nationalism. So um, according to um, 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 nationalists, uh, nation is a, a primordial and eternal body, uh, right? Um, an organism, um, and but according to the constructionist uh, constructivist view, um, it's uh, um, it's constructed, um, constructed. Um, it's a it's a social construction or it's a political construction. So it's a um, intentionally um, constructed. Someone wrote the principles frameworks down um and in russian case that's also uh happened because before uh, the revolution before the soviet union um russian national identity uh, was very weak um and the number one reason uh for the actual there are two big reasons probably um uh, one is um imperial identity 
uh, was uh, occupying uh, the, I mean, leading the discourse, uh, right? Uh, the imperial identity, um, which is very similar to, for instance, in Britain, um, British identity, um, initially imperial, now there's no empire, but more like, um, uh, let's say, uh, there's a, still a monarchy, um, so queen is the embodiment embodiment of that uh, identity. Actually, um, uh, Queen Elizabeth II now. So, um, because the British identity is strong, uh, we have weaker English identity, an ethno-linguistic identity, a modern ethno-linguistic identity. Because British identity, um, in a way, um, occupies most of the space. There's not much space left to English identity. What happens is, of course, um, because the Scottish national identity uh, uh, gains um, um, more and more uh, ground um, and becomes stronger, there is a a reaction to that from the English side, um, English identity, and that also uh, pushes uh, British identity gradually to the corner. That an umbrella imperial identity is, uh, in a way, gradually um, pushed back by these ethno-linguistic identities. Uh, but this is a long process in in Britain. Now, if, if you go back to Russia, beginning of the 20th century, uh, Russian imperial identity uh, was very strong. So, um, um, imperial identities usually don't like national. Uh, Ethno-linguistic national identities, ethnic identities. They, they, uh, their relation to these identities is more uh, like um, um, as a between the monarch, rural ruler, and the subject. Um, mm-hmm. uh, German, for instance, um, ethnic groups, uh, Germanic groups within the Russian Empire. Um, um, they had good relations with the uh, monarch, um, with the imperial uh, authority. Um, that's why um, that's why they were they they were not considered as an enemy or an alien body within the imperial um, imperial polity. There were many German uh, generals, German um, bu- bureaucrats, German aristocrats, uh, Baltic uh, region, because was uh, was one of those uh, source of German, uh, that German elites of Baltic region integrated gradually into the imperial court and they became uh, also... Uh, senior bureaucrats, uh, military and civil bureaucracy, part of military and civil bureaucracy, and also Germans, for instance, intentionally were um, they were they uh, settled in uh, in different areas in the Caucasus, in Central Asia, um, in Ukraine. Um, you know, there, there were different um, um, and Volga region. They uh, that you could find. German villages, towns, uh, German populations um, all around the Russian Empire um, intentionally um, they were settled there um, because they were they were seen as uh, the agents of uh, the empire. Uh, uh, positive, I mean, uh, they were good. They were good subjects. So, from for for the imperial authority, it doesn't matter what nationality, what what, what ethno, what language you speak, what ethno 
ling um, linguistic group you affiliate to. Uh, it really doesn't matter. In imperial logic, you are either a good subject, you are part of the system, or um, you are um, you are not a, you are not um, 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 you do not um, or you are you are a rebellion. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, the the importance or the um, you see the importance uh, of uh, ethnicities in an imperial structure uh, does not come um, from their ethnic ethnolinguistic uh, ethnolinguistic identity a cultural identity per se it comes from their um, loyalty um, uh, that, that uh, the, the their importance um, so yeah so Russian uh, modern national identity um, uh, if you go back to Russian modern national identity was also a bourgeoising uh, identity it was just a um, an infant at an infant stage, let's say, um, uh, people in villages, uh, towns, uh, they would either define themselves as uh, um, uh, members of uh, Russian Orthodox Church, uh, the, the good and you know, the right believers, um, um, and uh, other people would be like infidels, aliens. Um, um, or they would define themselves by regional identities, uh, you know, like uh, uh, if they're from a, from Siberia, if they're from uh, uh, Volga region, if they're from a particular city, uh, from Kazan, uh, from Moscow, um, you know, or, or cities, um, especially regions, um, they were dominant identities, or religious, uh, more universal religious identities, um, but not ethnolinguistic definitions. Um, and they were, of course, considered themselves as uh, good subjects of uh, the Tsar. Um, and uh, Tsar was the father, uh, omnipotent Tsar, um, and they were uh, the children. And Tsar had the obligation to look after them. So that was that was it. A, a more like a um, pre-modern, pre—I um, uh, would say pre-capitalist also um, uh, identity. But during the Bolshevik time, all this changed, of course, uh, especially after 1930s. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I guess this leads to a couple of questions immediately. Why did the Bolsheviks consider? Building national identities part of a modernization project. That's a that's a that's a great question. Actually, that's a very important question. Um, there's a big literature on that as well. Uh, brilliant things uh, uh, have been written sin, uh, since since uh, 1990s, especially after the archives, uh, um, Soviet archives opened and uh, researchers uh, went and studied there, uh, because. Um, 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 uh, before that, um, the perception of Soviet Union was uh, in in especially American uh, literature. Uh, I mean, academic literature was um, uh, the, the depiction was um, well. So, what's the difference? There's no difference between the Russian Empire and Soviet Union. It's just a um, paint, something painted with red uh, paint, and it's just a they. they 
it's not sincere. Uh, it's, it's another empire um, replacing the previous one. Um, this um, internationalism, Marxism, is just a facade, um, just to... Uh, it's a trick. Um, Russia is again the same Russia. It's a prison of nations, um, um, and um, yeah, that was the discourse. It's a colonial empire uh, sucking the blood of non-Russians, uh, suppressing them. Um, now we have more nuanced uh, understanding of it, and more, much better understanding of it. Now. Um, that's first I wanted to say that um, about the Soviet Union. The second thing is, uh, as you um, 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 mentioned, why it was important for them, for the Bolsheviks, to build, um, um, pro- to, to promote separate modern national identities. Uh, through, that's through the uh, Soviets, uh, the Bolsheviks uh, heavily invested in the um, um, uh, e- equality of uh, ethnic and national identities and protected differences. I mean, um, uh, this was especially true <clears throat> uh, with the titular nations of Union Republics after 1936. The one important thing to know is um, although we have the 70 years of, uh, more than 70 years of Soviet uh, period, um, um that's not a homogeneous period. Uh, it's a very intensive period. There are different policies. Um, constantly, every decade, every 10, 15 years, something changed, um, new developments. Um, so there's not a constant, uh, um, consistent uh, policy. Uh, Bolsheviks were um, ideolo- by ideology. They are, they are internationalists, and they detested nationalism. You know, they didn't like it. Uh, at the same time, they understood the power uh, of nationalism, um, especially uh, be- right before the First World War and during the Second World War and during the Russian Civil War. Um, if you if you uh, uh, if you remember this, um, um, before the revolution, um, most of the um, Bolshevik party leadership members, uh, leading uh, figures, were uh, uh, political exiles in in Europe. Um, um, Or they were exiled in Siberia. (laughs) Some of them escaped more than once. Um, So um, um, they were, um, for instance, um, Lenin and Stalin at some point, they were in today's Austro-Hungarian Empire, uh, right before the First World War. Um, And um, they observed um, um, vividly how different ethnic identities um, are they are so strong uh, they they shape people's political decisions and they in a way divert people's attention from uh, class identity or uh, economic contradictions uh, in the system they live in um, um, they People can be mobilized, and are they? They are mobilized easier by the national discourse, and they have seen witnesses again in 1914, um, uh, as you know, the, the internationalist uh, uh, wing wanted to um, 
convince the, the rest of the left uh, to to um, to turn this uh, war, uh, uh, which which was uh, seen as a war between uh, uh, rival capitalists, um, turn it into civil wars in all countries. Um, but um, I think the. The, the head of the Socialist Party in France at that time said, "If you have, if you do that, then the French uh, workers will just uh, come and beat us." <laughs> um, they have they have noticed um, uh, the power of national discourse, and then they have noticed they have ob- uh, witnessed the same thing during the civil war. Actually, um, how how <clears throat> national national identities. Uh, why they are, they were so um, or grievances uh, antagonism between uh, dif- different identities um, which for the Bolsheviks were more archaic or consequence of uh, contradictions uh, with, uh, within the capitalist system uh, something temporary um, but they understood that this is the fact this is the reality this is the nature of things that they live in so they have to uh they ha- they cannot um they cannot just uh, um you know um consider it uh, to consider that it doesn't exist <laughs> uh it wouldn't it wouldn't be a realistic approach uh so they thought this is a problem uh this is an issue we don't like it but we have it so we have to deal with it So how can we deal with it? Um, and the dealing with uh, nationalism, um, the, the, the theory probably uh, can be simply uh, put in a in a in a in a in a in a way uh, like this. Um, um, they saw nationalism as a as a as a, um, a consequence of uh, economic relations of uh, capitalist era. So. Um, and they thought uh, once the uh, economic system evolves uh, to, to socialism, uh, as they defined it, um, nations would disappear um, um, in in this in the process, right? Uh, and we, all cultures would merge into a, a humanist culture, like a, a big cauldron where everything merges. Um, becomes one uh, and that's a that's just a human culture you know not like um, uh, th- this specific culture that specific culture that's this specific identity and um, while waiting for this like I say magical moment um, they thought they had to exhaust national identities by accelerating the historical uh, formation of these identities so it was like driving a car uh with failed brakes uh they thought okay they can we cannot stop the car so the best thing was to accelerate the car in order to run out of fuel as soon as as quick as possible so that then then the car will stop <laughs> and we will we will leave this um shackles of national nationalism let's say um behind behind in history that's why they thought this is important Uh, that's one reason. The um, the second reason is um, they inherited many antagonisms, um, uh, quasi-national, quasi-religious, uh, 
uh, you know, uh, certain things, um, for instance, in the Caucasus, um, uh, Armenian and Muslim uh, populations um, more than once uh, attacked each other and killed. There was an ethno-religious antagonism in the region um, for the last 20 years before the Bolsheviks came to power and start to rule the region. So when they ended up in the Caucasus, uh, there was that antagonism, uh, there was that conflict. Um, and uh, Or in, uh, in Kazakh steppe, in Central Asia, for instance, uh, the imperial rule um, colonized um, by... Um, um, uh, the region, uh, certain regions, um, and in North Caucasus as well, and in the South Caucasus, um, sending uh, Russian, Ukraine, uh, Slavic, uh, and Germanic uh, uh, settlers, especially Slavic settlers, um, and especially um, allocating them um, um, fertile uh, bits of land. Um, for instance, in Northern Caucasus, pushing the natives to the mountains, further to the mountains, uh, so that those Slavic settlers um, could have the uh, fertile uh, valleys and so forth. So, um, or in Ukraine, um, for instance, um, Jews, uh, anti-Jewish pogroms, uh, uh, famous anti-Jewish pogroms, infamous anti-Jewish pogroms, uh, as you know, uh, happened in the, in the last decades of the uh, Russian Empire, which, which of course had some uh, medieval, um, I mean, earlier um, uh, predecessors, but um, earlier things. So there were a lot of et- ethnic or ethno-linguistic um, clashes around, and the Bolsheviks had to build a country after the. Um, after the incredible destruction of the civil war, if you have ever seen recently, for instance, pictures from the uh, from uh, the cities and towns in Syria, um, um, you know, there's there's not a single building uh, which was not <laughs> uh, hit by a, an artillery or tanks or you know uh, uh, without bullet holes on the uh, facade of the building. So uh, many Russian cities uh, were in that state, including uh, Petersburg um, uh, and Moscow. So um, they had to rebuild the city country. And not only that, it was not sufficient. They had to catch the, you know, the, the, the economic level of the developed uh, capitalist countries uh, and surpass that. You know, they had, the, the plan was to build a Soviet economy, uh, a, a productive economy that would surpass uh, Switzerland, um, England, or the United States. Um, so, but how can you do that if people are constantly killing each other? <laughs> um, an Armenian engineer and a Muslim accountant um, uh, and a Jewish, um, I don't know, um, um, uh, a Jewish, uh, let's say, uh, manager. So how they can work together uh, in a dam construction uh, or in a, a steel mill construction or in a railway construction, railroad, railroad construction, if uh, they hate each other. Um, so you need to establish a sense of 
peace and tranquility. Uh, and you cannot do this by uh, by just um, 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 you have to recognize uh, identities uh, and uh, you have to give to those identities something, satisfy those identities. Uh, otherwise, they can be also uh, against the authority, you see. Um, and they start to see Soviet rule as another suppressive Russian rule. So you see there are many... Um, factors like this, um, in reality, when they start to rule the country, um, they understood this. And there was, um, um, uh, the last bit I want to say, um, there, there was, of course, um, a big resistance. Uh, part of the party, Russians, uh, ethnically Russians, I mean, um, some of them uh, could not grasp this. They couldn't understand this, uh, uh, these needs. And, um, um, for instance, in Ukrainian national identity, Belarusian national identity, when those things uh, were discussed, um, um, they uh, they thought uh, that these are um, artificial constructions, um, German conspiracy, because in 1918, when the German army uh, moved forward, um, they were in, uh, ended up in today's Ukraine, and they supported Ukrainian um, um, Ukrainian uh, uh, nationalists uh, in 1918, um, uh, and, and, and Baltics as well. Uh, they wanted to create a buffer zone between uh, Russia and Germany, and uh, looking forward and. Um, and the party, uh, many Russians um, thought that this is a, these things are um, a Russian conspiracy, uh, sorry, German conspiracy, and we shouldn't take these uh, things uh, seriously. Um, but there's a there's a there's a section in, and actually Stalin was, uh, as you mentioned, uh, mm. um, was the um, was the like the uh, number one expert on these issues. And um, in his report, I think it was in 1920 or 21 party congress, um, um, it's online, easy to find. Uh, he he addresses to the, these uh, ethnic Russian uh, party members. He says, um, you, you are not right because, um, you know, 20, 30 years ago, uh, Prague was a German city, uh, Riga was a German city, uh, Vilnius. I mean, um, he refers to Eastern European cities where uh, Germans, Jews, and um, uh, mostly lived in the middle of the Slavic, mostly, for instance, in Czech, 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 Czechoslovakia, in the middle of Slavic peasant sea, you know. Mm. Uh, those cities were like islands of uh, urban islands where People talk different languages, different, and uh, um, uh, mostly Germ Germanic, you know. Uh, so, but now it's evolving. He said, um, this is not the case anymore. So, we have now a strong uh, Czech, we have now a strong Lithuanian uh, identity, and so on. So, he said, um, this will happen also with Ukraine. This will happen also with um, uh, Belarus. This is this is how the, the river of history, like, um, the time and this is the this this is the 
spirit of the time. So it's it, we cannot deny it. We cannot um, um, uh, close our eyes. On the contrary, we have to be proactive. We have to do something. We cannot push this back because it, then it will uh, overcome. I mean, it will it will just um, uh, push aside <laughs> us. Uh, so he said that's not a German conspiracy. This is this is part of historical evolution. Uh, this is a process. Um, we have to develop uh, policies accordingly instead of denying it, refusing it. Um, we should accept and adjust uh, ourselves accordingly. So before we get to modern national identities in Ukraine and a few other uh, split-offs that the Soviets had trouble dealing with, I wanted to ask you specifically about Stalin because I find two, there's two separate contexts for Stalin's uh, 1913 work that I found fascinating. The the first one is the debates within the Social Democrats about nationalities, Rosa Luxemburg, Adam Pankuk, Otto Bauer, uh, which uh, Stalin all addresses and, and kind of synthesizes in different ways. But there's also the fact that he's coming up in Georgia and Georgia is like the locust of these inter-ethnic uh, pogroms and whatnot. I mean, he, he basically grows up in an extremely violent environment with different ethnicities. Uh, how do these two things inform his thinking? Like, which one's actually the primary thing driving Stalin's thought here? Um, because Stalin does take his leads from Lenin, but he departs from him in some crucial ways, too. And it seems to be rooted in this tension. Hmm. Hmm. Well, um, um, what I, I I would say personally about uh, Stalin's um, uh, youth and his experience as a Caucasian, as a Georgian in Georgia, um, um, Georgia per se, uh, I mean Georgia itself was not um, um, was not a theater of um, big ethnic uh, clashes actually. Mm. Um, it was more in uh, 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 where we have now Ar Ar Armenia and Azerbaijan. Um, uh, there were ethnic clashes there. Um, in the Georgian case, um, I, I don't recall um, uh, now um, those kind of big ethnic clashes in, in the beginning of the century. Um, <clears throat> but... Um, um, he was, um, um, but he, uh, for instance, when he, he lived in Tbilisi, uh, beginning of the 20th century, um, because he, 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 he was a student there um, in a, a re religious a seminary, uh, Orthodox uh, seminary in, in Tbilisi, in center of Tbilisi. Uh, I think even the building is still there. Um, so... Um, uh, Tbilisi was uh, very much also an Armenian city uh, <laughs> because, you know, in this uh, imperial medieval uh, or imperial legacy, this is uh, as as uh, many uh, in Eastern Europe, many cities were uh, German cities, uh, as I mentioned, um, or representative of Germanic culture in broader sense of the word, um, um, not national per se, but you know, uh, in a loose way, uh, uh, in a loose way, that that's the case. So, um, in Tbilisi, for instance, there was a big um, um, Armenian population, uh, and um, there was a, a Muslim minority, uh, and there were Georgians, of course. Um, 
<laughs> but um, um, local Armenians probably saw Tbilisi their city as much as Georgians saw it their city, right? Uh, um, so he was, what I want to say is he experienced a multi-ethnic environment uh, mm-hmm. uh, from his, since um, he, uh, he was a teenager um, uh, they, when he, w- he went to Batumi um, later on as a uh, agitator um, um, when he was sent by the party there um, you know, he, um, he had he stayed at a, a local uh, Muslim Georgian uh, because there were also Muslim Georgians uh, there, uh, so there's this uh, cross o- overlapping identities um, as as well as Turkic speaking Greeks, you know, all kind of combinations in in imperial territories you can find. Um, so he who, who, he stayed in a um, uh, Muslim Georgian's uh, house. <laughs> um, so um, in Batumi, so all kind of these kind of experiences, right? Uh, when he was in, um, of course, when he was um, in Siberia, um, um, that was completely a different um, ethnocultural experience. Um, that's probably, because, but just, this is not an accident uh, because uh, Russian Empire was a, a huge uh, territory uh, with, a, a diverse uh, a, a, a ethnic populations. Uh, half of the population was Russian; the other half was non-Russian. Um, so that's normal. Um, um, your your question, perhaps, was it? Are we talking about ninety uh, right after nineteen twenty twenty one? This um, uh, contradiction uh, discussions around. Uh, after Georgia was incorporated, uh, became part of the Soviet Union, Red Army uh, occupied, etc. Um, Georgian Communist Party members they clash with the with the Stalin and so on, and Lenin's response. Are we talking about that bit, uh, or um, uh, I mean, is this was this bit part of your question? Or yeah, a little out? bit. Hmm. Uh, the, um, the Lenin, I think, was more, in a sense, um, optimist and tolerant when it came to national identities. That uh, uh, he his concern was the dominance of Russian identity within the new state. Uh, he, he his approach was okay. We Russians uh, made a lot of mistakes and caused a lot of anger and that anger also sharpened uh, ethnic identities national identities all around the country uh now we have to repair uh, the mistakes of the past um uh, we should uh, we should give uh, uh cultural rights we should give uh, enough space and sources for the development of national identities, national cultures, languages, and um, literature, etc. Um, otherwise, these antagonisms can basically uh, uh, lead us 
to the end of the new state, right? That was Lenin's approach. Um, Stalin's, I think, uh, because there was this discussion around the constitution of the new regime, uh, Stalin had a slightly different approach at that time. Uh, I'm talking about 1920, 22, uh, period 23. Um, Stalin thought, um, if he, uh, he saw these things as concessions, uh, you know, if he, if he stepped back, uh, from internationalism towards, uh, I mean, if we give more ground to uh, nationalism, uh, we will move ourselves. You know, um, we will, we will, uh, we will uh, find ourselves far away from internationalist uh, uh, approach, and um, in a way, we will dig our own uh, graves um, by giving too much to uh, national movements, uh, national identities. Um, I think we can summarize uh, that discussion um, beginning of the Soviet Union when they were writing down, uh, writing the constitution, uh, administrative structure, and what rights and uh, uh, you know, uh, powers should have the lo- at the local level and what center should have and so on uh, when they had these discussions. Um, yeah. So why were certain nationalities harder to incorporate into um, Soviet internationalism than others? I mean, Poland's the obvious case, but also uh, Yugoslavia, which is kind of a, a, a synthetic nationalism, um, Albania, uh, and, and the Ukraine actually is a continuing thorn. Um, why are these in particular harder than, say, the Central Asian nationalisms, which are which are not as antagonistic with the with the, the the Soviet Union, per se? Um, That's also an interesting question. Of course, um, Polish, uh, I think um, national identities, of course, they do not evolve uh, simultaneously. Um, They, um, at the same level, Uh, there are differences, um, like... um, even today, for instance, the in Britain Welsh nationalism uh, is at a different level uh, uh, versus uh, Scottish nationalism, versus Irish nationalism and English nationalism. So uh, development patterns, first of all, uh, in each case uh, is different, uh, can be different. There are, of course, similarities. Uh, we can group different identities, different national identities, how they evolved in the last uh, 100 or 200 years, <coughs> modern identities. Um, but still, there are differences. Um, uh, speed or pace, you know, the, 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 there's also a difference in speed. Um, there's also a difference, um, 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 uh, the, the difference also, uh, a consequence of the location, uh, interaction uh, with the neighboring uh, emerging identities, uh, modern identities as well. Uh, Ukrainian uh, case uh, is, of course, different than, for instance, the Kazakh case or uh, uh, Georgian case. Uh, um, um, yes, so that's why I think um, <clears throat> when the when the internationalists, or um, let's say in general, um, if you think about the Soviet Union, when the Bolsheviks came to power, um, they found 
different ethnic identities, different nationalities at different levels of uh, development. Um, I'm not only I'm not talking about economic development, <clears throat> but um, as an identity, the construction of the identity. Uh, um, um, they were at different levels uh, within the new uh, country, within the new uh, system. Uh, I mean, we had, for instance, uh, Kurds uh, in the uh, in the, in South Caucasus. Um, they were ninety more than ninety five percent illiterate. Uh, there wasn't a Kurdish literate language like literature there wasn't anything uh, published written in kurdish they most of them were uh, uh, semi nomads um moving um uh, up uh, um migrating to the uh, mountain sites um or higher uh, plateaus in the summer and then in the winter uh, moving down um to the valleys um relatively isolated from Uh, local uh, market towns. Uh, they, would, they would, when they had to, they would visit. Um, there were, there were, there wasn't any urban Kurdish population. Um, so uh, that's was a big contrast, for instance, to um, let's say um, uh, Georgian case or um, or Russian case. Uh, you, you know, um, so in the Kurdish case. They had to, for instance, uh, homogenize the language, uh, standardize the, the, the standardization of language had to be done. There's alphabet, uh, grammar rules, uh, and a certain dialect had to be uh, picked in order to use in all uh, printed material. Um, then uh, some people, um, you know, some Kurds had to be educated um, uh, in this Uh, new uh, medium uh, and then um, national language and then they had to produce a national literature uh, novels poems and so on so uh, and that those this is this is how they saw it you see uh, the Bolsheviks and then at the same time those Kurds would move from being semi nomadic uh, uh, semi nomads or peasants they would be Uh, uh, they would work in railway construction. Uh, they would become factory workers. So they would also have a class consciousness, um, uh, become part of the proletariat. And so we would have a Kurdish, uh, uh, Kurdish national culture and identity, uh, which is, um, as Stalin put it, um, national in form and socialist in content. Uh, um, so uh, that was the that was the plan for each identity. But of course, the development level, in a sense, let's uh, uh, say not developed, but the level of construction of modern identities were at different stages. Uh, um, like in Ukraine, it was a different different story. In Kazakhstan, it was a different story. Um, so yeah. Um, uh, that's I would say probably for now. <laughs> yeah. So one thing I would ask is one thing I constantly hear about the current Ukrainian tensions, and to bring this, this is actually related to stuff uh, in the early 20th century, is that 
some of the Ukrainian tensions regionally do have histories going back to intersectarian tensions between Unite Catholics who are more aligned with Poles and Orthodox who are more aligned with Russia. Uh, but I've always found this explanation kind of an overstatement as for contemporary problems, and that that didn't seem to be a huge factor in in the in the Soviet context. Was that just because of the general suppression of religion, or is that explanation kind of overstated? Well, in Ukraine, the, the Orthodox Church uh, is a big. Uh, uh, chunk of the population is uh, orthodox not uh, not uh, greek or to, not um, uh, greek catholic because there is this uh, interesting um, combination um, um, they they there's an uh, orthodox church but attached to uh, the, the catholic pope in rome uh, mm. so um there's a um, but there's also a Greek Orthodox uh, Church, you see, um, I mean, uh, the proper Orthodox Church in, in Ukraine. Um, so, um, and then we have the Russian Orthodox Church, of course. Um, um, the, uh, here, the, uh, the Ukrainian case is an interesting case, of course. Um, um, Ukraine uh, Historically, um, I can perhaps give a little bit background of, about uh, what Ukraine is. Uh, so, uh, what the what the Bolsheviks faced uh, and what they did uh, uh, after that. Um, Ukraine as a territory is uh, was between um, the Moscovite Principality in the north or in the east, uh, uh, Poland, uh, Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth at that time, that was how it was called um, in the west, and the Crimean uh, Hanate um, at the Black Sea, uh, where, uh, where today's Crimean Peninsula and adjacent territories. Um, so Ukraine was between these three, in a way, um, um, centers. Um, as a as a as a buffer zone, as a um, as a as a buffer zone between these three centers of um, power, and uh, gradually, at uh, first, uh, the Polish-Lithuanian side uh, ex- expanded uh, from 13th century to um, well into 17th century, um, and Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth uh, ruled. Uh, most of the territories that we call Ukraine now. Um, and that's why there was also uh, a Polish language was, uh, for instance, at that time, the language of the uh, urban uh, uh, educated uh, population. Um, and in the cities, uh, mostly Poles and Jews uh, lived uh, 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 that uh, Slavic population, um, um, which uh, um, 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 uh, which spoke like this, this Ukrainian language, as we call it now, um, um, where they were mostly uh, peasants um, in the countryside, uh, and uh, these uh, Cossacks um, 
um, more non-serfs, let's say, uh, uh, people, villagers who are not attached to uh, land. Uh, um, most of them uh, were also they were also um, uh, mercenaries. Um, so uh, that was kind of an income for them. Um, so um, they they were they and they they were either uh, some, uh, mostly used by the Polish Lithuanian Commonwealth uh, to protect the borderland from the Tatars, uh, Crimean Khanate uh, in the south or uh, in the east, uh, Moscovite uh, principality. Uh, then in the 17th century, things changed. Um, uh, Moscow uh, principality uh, um, in Moscow uh, expanded. They defeated the Poles, expanded their territory, 18th century, especially 17th, 18th century. And <clears throat> uh, most of uh, the territories that we call Ukraine now, um, there was a big, the, the, most of the territory that we Ukraine, call Ukraine now became, um, um, uh, they become part of the uh, Russian Empire uh, later on, um, uh, when the Principality of Moscow, of course, uh, evolved into uh, uh, Russian Empire, thanks to especially Peter the Great. Um, so um, that's why uh, yesterday's uh, Kiev, uh, uh, became, uh, which was part of which was a Polish territory, became um, a Russian imperial city. Um, um, so elites there, of course, uh, became part of uh, the Russian court in Saint Petersburg, for instance, uh, um, and um, now. Ukraine as a toponym, as a name of a geography, existed in this period, gradually became uh, popular, that name, uh, because that's uh, also in Slavic, means cry Ukraine, It's uh, it means the borderland, basically, uh, no, or nobody's land, borderland, you know. And there's also a similar case, actually, Croatia. Uh, mm-hmm. Croatia also, Slavic uh, that uh, et, 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 etymology of the same the, the word also goes back to Krai, uh, the borderland. That was the case between the Ottoman Empire and Austro-Hungarian Empire. And like uh, for a couple of centuries, that was a borderland, uh, and the inhabitants were uh, settlers were mostly uh, soldiers and their families and garrisons. You know the um, uh, a chain of defensive uh, castles or walls. Um, um, protecting the rest of the country, um, so Ukraine had a similar, uh, in a way, uh, function. Uh, now that's why toponym, uh, so as a geographic name, uh, that existed. Um, um, end of nineteenth century, second of second half of nineteenth century, we gradually see uh, uh, emergence of uh, the, uh, the idea of a modern Ukrainian national identity. Uh, now, you, modern Ukraine national identity had to defeat more than one uh, opponents <laughs> uh, at the same time. Uh, they had to defeat the Poles. Uh, I, I don't mean in the battlefield, but uh, in mental sense, you see. Um, um, they had to differentiate Ukrainian identity from the Polish identity as a modern national identity. They had to differentiate their identity from the Russian uh, identity. Mm. Um, uh, but at the same time, of course, uh, in Russia, uh, modern Russian national identity was also 
uh, was uh, 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 in infancy, uh, the Russian imperial identity uh, was the dominant discourse. That's why um, uh, from the imperial perspective, um, uh, people living in Ukraine uh, were part of a bigger Rus identity, uh, like a, um, a kind of small relatives of what we have uh, uh, in Russia, right? Um, it's it, they didn't they didn't consider these things as modern national identities, but as a as a, as a subjects with different uh, heritage. Uh, with different stories. Uh, uh, so that's why in Russian, for instance, when uh, Russian 19th, 19th century, when an imperial uh, bureaucrat talks about uh, Velikarus, the great Rus, and uh, Malarus, uh, small Rus, referring to uh, first to the Russians and the second uh, today's Ukrainians, uh, they would consider it as uh, different parts of their subjects, um, or subjects of the Tsar, um, 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 <clears throat> with some uh, slight differences, let's say. Um, but Ukrainian, of course, modern national identity had to fight against this in order to open enough space, uh, uh, like um, uh, turning to Poles, saying that, no, we are not Russified Uh, Poles, we are Ukrainians, and then turning to the Russians, no, we are not police, police, policified uh, 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 Russians. We have a different identity, and that was in 1880s, 1890s, uh, uh, and the beginning of 20th century. Uh, there were historians, linguists uh, who who developed this, this uh, articulated this modern national identity. And sometimes they had uh, favorable um, um, conditions as well. Uh, why? Um, Russian imperial authorities, they saw this uh, um, local, for them, this local, like the emergence of this uh, uh, differentiation of uh, Uh, Ukrainians, um, this local elites, intelligentsia discussing these things, they saw it uh, as a, they saw something um, they could use, for instance, against the Poles. Uh, that's why uh, if you go to Kiev, uh, there is a famous uh, monument there, uh, monument of Bogdan uh, Khmelnytsky. Uh, Himelnitsky was a Cossack leader who uh, fought against the Poles in the 17th century. Um, and um, um, he had a Cossack army. Uh, they, uh, Russian authorities, installed a huge monument, a uh, statue of uh, Himelnitsky. Uh, uh, um, and uh, in the original design of that, Uh, there's a horse and then Himelitsky, uh like um, um, with a bulba uh, or Himelitsky, um, um mounted uh, horse and um, uh, with a bull like a, a stick 
um, mm -hmm. with a small sphere on, at the end of the ship that, that symbolizes the uh, headmanship or the uh, leadership, chieftainship of uh, Cossacks. Uh, um, um, uh, I think it's uh, uh, pointing uh, westwards uh, towards the poles. Um, and for the Russian imperial authorities, Khmelnytsky was the symbol of orthodox uh, belief against the Catholic belief, symbol of uh, Rus uh, in the broader sense uh, of the term, uh, historical heritage of Rus against the Poles. Uh, and it was very convenient to promote Khmelnytsky uh, because they already a couple of years back experienced the Polish uprising against the Russian imperial order in, in, in Warsaw. So they promoted that uh, Khmelnytsky, for instance, as an anti-Polish uh, figure, and he was an anti-Polish figure. Uh, and He was actually a very anti-Semitic figure as well in the 17th century. Um, I mean, the Jewish chronicles, uh, uh, we have... Uh, 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 explaining detail how uh, dreadful that period was uh, for the Jews, um, and that's why in the original um, PTV, I don't have uh, we don't have the picture <coughs> of Himelitsky uh, monument there in Kiev. In the original design, um, um, at the bottom of the uh, statue, there, there were there was a Catholic priest and a, and a Jew uh, under the you know the, the feet of uh, the, the horse. Uh, but later on, either the money was not enough to to do the, the, the whole thing, or uh, it's it looked a bit too too much, you know. I don't know controversial. There are different uh, re, uh, theories. Uh, uh, they only have the horse and the Himalayan, but not the Catholic priest and the uh, uh, Jew, uh, perhaps a um, 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 uh, tradesman. I don't know, um, like. Uh, uh, Um, in the in the monument. Um, so um, again, in Austria-Hungarian Empire, part of Ukraine was uh, 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 under the jurisdiction of uh, Austria-Hungarian Empire, Galicia, Galicia. Um, in today's Lviv or Lviv, um, and as a major city in that region. So uh, there again, uh, Austria, Austrian authorities, um, Austria-Hungarian authorities, um, sometimes. Um, Um, uh, so Ukrainian emerging Ukrainian national identity those 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 ideas um, uh, something that they could use against the uh, Polish identity uh, so and the, um, in 1920 when Bolsheviks came um, of course during the civil war Uh, there's it's a long story there, uh, but if we um, skip to the Bolshevik period, um, there was already some Ukrainian idea of Ukrainian national identity there. Uh, was it embraced by the majority of the population? Well, that's questionable because there is, for instance, a British um, intelligence reports where uh, ordinary villagers in Ukraine at that time would uh name themselves as like uh, nashi like kind of uh, ours we this is who we are like or orthodox church members you see and uh, russians is um uh, like uh, moscovian uh, these 
vagueness in pre-modern period, you know, the absence of national um, uh, self-identification. Um, um, you know, and I saw it, I saw it in villages. Uh, they would go once a month to the city and they would see Russians or Jews or Poles uh, in the city center. Um, and um, uh, and then they would buy, sell what they wanted to sell, potatoes, apples, whatever, <laughs> fresh meat, and then buy what they wanted, uh, mostly semi, you know, the, the um, industrial stuff, and then they would go back to their village. Um, so in 1920s, of course, this changed. Um, there was a massive Ukrainian Ukrainization uh, in the Soviet Ukraine. Um, uh, to the extent that even Ukrainian, some Ukrainian nationalist uh, um, exiles in Poland, they prefer to go back to Soviet Union uh, instead of staying in Poland uh, or somewhere else. Uh, in 1930s, this changed dramatically. Um, uh, there was a suppression, there was an artificial famine uh, which uh, caused uh, uh, millions of uh, millions of Ukrainians perish that, that 1932, um, which is uh, in Ukrainian they call it a holodomor, um, and rightly so. It was a it was an awful period. Uh, millions died um, in Ukraine, um, but not only in Ukraine, um, in in uh, Russia and in Kazakhstan also because of collectivization, because of uh, forced collectivization in 1931, 1932, um, and uh, 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 wrong uh, uh, decisions and uh, um, um, uh, bad decisions uh, of the party uh, leadership, um, and um, that year, the, um, the the climate was not, you know, the the weather was not good, so they couldn't have also uh, enough uh, grain. Um, but all, everything overlapped, you know, this um, uh, forced collectivization and um, uh, bad decisions uh, of uh, party elite in Moscow. I would say uh, Stalin. Uh, 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 probably uh, as a leading figure in this uh, context, um, um, caused this uh, huge catastrophe. Uh, millions died, uh, millions of Ukrainians. So uh, you see, there is an interesting pattern in um, Ukrainian-Soviet case. Um, Ukrainian-Soviet Republic, um, Ukrainian, uh, Ukraine, um, um, in a way, at the same time, benefited from the Soviet experience and also, um, uh, um, how should I say it, um, um, experienced, um, 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 I don't know, um, experienced some uh, dreadful uh, consequences as well. Um, um, I... Today's Ukraine, for instance, um, consists of uh, different elements. Uh, um, this uh, Western Ukraine uh, historically was more um, uh, um, uh, under the influence of uh, Poland, uh, later on Austro-Hungarian imperial rule. Um, so 
Um, and Lviv, or Lviv uh, is the capital of that uh, region. Lviv, uh, before the Second World War, was a Polish city, basically. Uh, it wasn't a Ukrainian city. Uh, uh, and uh, there were sections in uh, Western Ukraine, uh, um, um, complete Polish, you know, um, in population, uh, ethnically. Um, so, uh, and Ukrainian nationalists dreamed of uniting Ukraine. You know, all national nationalists have this uh, greater... Something. Greater Serbia, greater Bulgaria, greater, I don't know, Arabia, greater Germany. Everyone has a greater version of their fatherland, right? So uh, uniting these different uh, uh, territories, which ended up uh, in an unfortunate moment in history uh, under the rule, ruled by foreign alien forces, uh they have to be liberated so that we will uh hug and come together with our um, um brothers and sisters and liberate them so that is um that was of course an important theme in ukrainian nationalism and uh, uh funny enough the red uh, army uh did this uh you know they they uh, they took to uh, western ukraine or at the time eastern poland uh from poland uh and that bit became um um part of soviet ukraine and then they took northern bukovina from romania again another chunk uh which uh, ukrainians uh, dreamed of uh, uniting with uh, you know uh, these bits and then they took uh, Carpathian Rus, uh, Car- uh, Carpathian um, uh, uh, Rus. Uh, there's a small, tiny territory which was um, during the interwar period part of Czechoslovakia. Then the uh, Nazi Germany uh, gave it to Hungary, and then because there's a Hungarian, uh, ethnically Hungarian territory, uh, very very much, uh, Uzhgorod is the uh, regional capital there. So uh, uh, the Soviets also um, um, added to this this territory as well to uh, uh, Ukrainian. Uh, uh, Soviet Socialist Republic. Um, if you consider um, the French example of First, Second, Third, Fourth Republic, uh, we can actually name Soviet Repu- Ukrainian Soviet Republic as a second as the Second Republic because there was a First Republic 1918, 18, 18, uh, 19, 18, 19, uh, 19 period, uh, 1918. Um, so, um, so the second, let's say, socialist or Soviet Republic uh, of Ukraine um, expanded um, to the limits, more or less, um, where Ukrainian nationalists dreamed, but they did not have army. They dreamed, but they did not have uh, peasants with them uh, because the nationalization, building, construction of the identity was in 1920 was absent. That, that it was not completed. I mean, there was this intellectual elite talking about this, some men of literature uh, discussing, writing, publishing, but that had perhaps resonance among the 10% of the population. Uh, if we, if we, Exigent 20%. The rest was 
peasant masses, you know, uh, they were not active agents uh, in, in, in the sense of uh, national awakening, let's say, mm, as nation, nationalists would name it. So, um, and then the Crimea, uh, 1950s, uh, although it wasn't a Ukrainian, Ukrainian, historically it wasn't part of Ukraine, uh, the central authorities in the Soviet Union um, wanted to give uh, this territory to Ukrainian Soviet Republic because nobody, of course, in 1950s thought that one day <laughs> these uh, borders will become uh, internal borders between Union Republics would turn into international republics and each republic would be an independent republic. And if you ask this to Khrushchev, uh, the first party's, uh, party secretary at that time, he would say, like, are, you, are you crazy? <laughs> uh, Soviet Union will last for centuries probably, right? So, um, yeah. <laughs> How much of the current situation is due to the particular way in which the Soviet uh, Union and its satellite states um, collapsed is the wrong word, but became a new polity? I know you said that there's a continuity between the Soviet period and the, and the post-1991-92 period. Uh, th- there isn't really with the Russian imperial period and the pre, uh, effectively is pre-modern uh in, in the sense of pre-capitalist and pre-liberal periods. Um, but uh, it seems like, like Yugoslavia, Ukraine is an area where this was never completely worked out. Ukraine, perhaps in Yugoslavian case, perhaps a bit like Macedonia mm. or Bosnia, where there is this uh, uh, identity emerged, but not crystallized till the end. Uh, uh, I'm not talking right now, but like in the process of 20th century, uh, we have this uh, crystallization, gradual, um, uh, gradually it's becoming more tangible. Um, and in, in many cases, thanks to the Soviet efforts as well. Uh, but uh, of course, I... Uh, uh, I still emphasize that there were also negative aspects of the Soviet period, this Holodomor um, um, and uh, um, you know, repression uh, of um, intellectuals and so on in 1930s. Um, and by default, the Soviet system was uh, not a, not a f- I mean, the people were not uh, uh, free uh, as we understand it, uh, as we wish Um, so um, not only Ukraine, other nationalities, of course, other peoples, of course, experienced uh, similar uh, repressive measures. Mm, uh, uh, so that's that's a negative aspect. But uh, on the other hand, the, there is also this um, um, continuity of this building, um, uh, Um, uh, the continuity, where the continuity is, continuity between pre and po- po- post 1991, uh, construction of the identity. Khmelnytsky uh, uh, is still a national hero uh, because the Soviets initially, funny enough, in 1920s, where if you go back to this figure, historical figure of Khmelnytsky, um, Soviets didn't like Khmelnytsky. They, they even uh, wanted to remove 
the monument of Khmelnytsky at the Kiev uh, city center. They thought this is a representative of um, uh, um, uh, commercial capitalism, uh, uh, you know, the general uh, military uh, leader of, uh, of commercial capitalism at that time. Um, there was a competition between these uh, uh, different groups of commercial capitalists in Poland, in uh, that time Ukraine. So they were just uh, mobilizing people uh, under the fake uh, flag of religion, uh, orthodox versus Catholicism and so on, uh, in order to pursue their uh, uh, hidden agendas, uh, economic um, uh, agendas. So uh they that that's why they even thought about removing and then in 1930s when they changed the policy when they start to write national histories for instance and when they look back in uh, the past and try to find national heroes uh, uh not uh, class struggle heroes, but national heroes, uh, they thought, oh, Khmelnytsky is a convenient figure uh, because he fought against the Poles. Uh, and now in 1930s, Poland was perceived by Moscow as a possible potential launch pad uh, uh, for an anti-Bolshevik crusade uh, by the German Nazi Nazi Germany, um, so they thought Poland can be an instrument against us used by Berlin, uh, uh, you know, uh, by Hitler. So um, and they had some um, reasons uh, to think like this. So they thought it's better if we promote Khmelnytsky character, uh, an anti-Polish character, because in the fu- in a future war uh, we can then construct Ukrainian national identity uh, in a way that would we would benefit in a future conflict when the Polish slash German army comes towards us we can uh, we can have an appropriate uh, reading of the past um, so that's why Hwilinski's statue uh, survived uh, and cherished and polished um, in 19 the second half of 1930s uh, 40s 50s um, um, even uh, during the Second World War, they coined uh, Himelnitsky uh, medals. Uh, you know, uh, a picture of Himelnitsky uh, depicted on the uh, special uh, medals, and uh, you know, a coin. They, 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 tens of thousands, uh, hundreds of thousands of them, uh, given to the soldiers uh, when they, when the Red Army liberated uh, Ukraine pushed the uh, German, uh, Nazi German army um, uh, westwards. Um, yeah, so um, now today's uh, conflict, um, for instance, um, um, in Russia today, um, um, there are Russian nationalists who do not accept uh, separate Ukrainian identity. Uh, um, they think that Ukrainian identity is uh, a quasi-identity. Um, 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 and 
also because of how they read the past, as you mentioned at the beginning, um, uh, the Kievan Rus, the medieval kingdom um, located where today's around the city of Kiev, Kiev and uh, along the uh, Dnieper River, Dnieper, um, um, from north to the uh, Kiev to uh, to the Black Sea. Um, <clears throat> which was a trade corridor uh, from Baltic Sea to uh, to the Black Sea and Constantinople in the south uh, to Eastern Roman Empire, Byzantine Empire, and so on. So Kiev in Rus was a uh, in a way a, a, a trade post, commercial uh, uh, um, um, uh, stopping point <laughs> um, uh, for the merchants uh, from north to south, from south to the north. And they benefited from this and they expanded their territory. Um, so this Kievan Rus as a medieval uh, state, medieval principality in, um, in the 11th, 12th, uh, 11th, 12th, 13th centuries uh, until the Mongols arrived. Um, it's a dispute. Why? Because, um, um, because there are two ways how history, uh, national history is uh, constructed, written. Um, um, Russian side um, um, uh, sees Kiev in Rus as a first Russian state. And Ukrainians also see Kiev in Rus as their first uh, Ukrainian state. Uh, so there is one past, but there are two different interpretations of the past, i.e., there are two histories. Um, in this, in such cases, and there, this is not the only example. Actually, there are more examples to that. Um, uh, Charlemagne, for instance. Uh, famous uh, uh, Frankish king, uh, you know, emperor. um, um, uh, It was a dispute uh, between uh, German nation builders and French nation builders. Uh, Is it a French uh, leader or is it a German uh, leader? You see? Uh, Or Vikings, who are they? Uh, should the uh, Danish nationalists be proud of uh, Vikings or the uh, Swedish uh, or Norwegians uh, should consider their early ancestors uh, who conquered half of Europe, you know, uh, and everyone trembled and <laughs> they shook everyone in their boots, you know, they, they, everyone uh, from, the, from the chronicles in uh, northern England in York to uh, to 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 Paris, uh, 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 the monasteries around Paris, or in even in Constantinople, in um, today's Istanbul, in Byzantine records, uh, you can find um, um, Vikings or uh, Normans, Norse Norsemen. Uh, they appear, they ransack, kill, enslave, and go. So, um, uh, so this is a this is a. Uh, a brilliant uh, building block uh, element to add to your romantic nationalist narrative. Uh, so who's going to be the owner of this? Uh, or, or, which Scandinavian country? Um, even there was a, there was some 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 um, uh, you know even even at some point I think um, uh, British uh, monarchy or Germans. I mean there were a lot of contesting uh, polities trying to grasp and nationalize the past and take the Vikings into their narrative. So Kievian Rus is something like this. It, it's, a, it's a 
um, each side, when they are building their national narrative, they go back and nationalize the past. But when this nationalization overlaps, then we have a problem there. <laughs> uh, so um, that's why national, Russian nationalists do not, some Russians, uh, uh, some Russian nationalists do not um, uh, accept uh, Ukraine as a separate entity, as a separate national identity, because they say, uh, this is where we come from. I mean, where the Ukrainians are. Uh, they were influenced by Germans or Poles. That's why their language, of course, in time changed. We speak slightly a different language. Uh, but if we, uh, 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 if we concentrate a bit, we can understand what they say. Uh, so they are not like alien, you know. Uh, they are two branches of a big tree. Um, so, um, but then how far the Russian contemporary Russian state, Russian elites, politicians, including uh, Vladimir Putin and the president of Russia, uh, Russian Federation, how far they uh, accept this, uh, this rhetoric, how far they uh, believe in this, that's another question. Uh, how far they use this as an perhaps instrument to mobilize people in Russia, uh, that's another question. Uh, that's a big question, um, I think. So that uh, is probably a good place as any um, to end off here. I know that doesn't answer all the questions that people might want answered about the contemporary situation. Uh, when we scheduled this call initially, we uh, had no idea that this would accelerate um, right now, although it seems like many of these issues have been coming to the head as of late. One can also look at the situation in Kazakhstan. Um, so I'd like to thank Dr. Uh, Yemez um, for coming on today. Um, I would... Uh, I would ask you, um, are there any books or anything other than your own, of course, um, that you would suggest people read for understanding the current situation? Well, um, I would suggest, uh, my, well, my, my, uh, my, my work, I wouldn't consider it as a number one uh, thing to read. Uh, uh, there are much better, uh, I think, uh, scholars than me. Um, uh, Terry Martin uh is a, I think is um, is a great uh, scholar. Uh, if uh, um, uh, you, uh, if any any of uh, our listeners, audience, uh, member of audience, want to know more about the Soviet experience of national identities, I, uh, af the Affirmative Action Empire, uh, Terry Martin's uh, Affirmative Action Empire, is a great book, and uh, uh, that uh, uh, the second book, uh, and I would probably suggest two books, um, is um, uh, Sunni. Um, and Terry Martin is a professor of Harvard University, and uh, I'm not sure if it still is, but head of uh, Davies. Uh, Russian um, uh, Eastern European Center. Um, uh, well, it's a brilliant book, um, Terry Martin, uh, Affirmative Action Empire. And uh, uh, Sunni, uh, uh, Professor Sunni, uh, who is emeritus uh, 
professor at University of Chicago and University of uh, Michigan and Arbor, uh, 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 University of Michigan. Um, um, his book, uh, Revenge of the Past, uh, I think it's a sh- shorter, uh, more condensed uh, Revenge of the Past. Um, and um, that's, a, if not Terry Martin, Terry Martin is... Uh, heavily using archive materials and perhaps more into as as a bit more specialist uh, case but uh, suni's revenge of the past um, i think even one might find a pdf version even on online um revenge of the past is a brilliant book to to which summarizes the whole process from the beginning of the century pre-soviet period soviet period and post-soviet period as well um it's a very condensed but very useful uh very um let's say enlightening book um, very useful one all right thank you uh dr Yemans, and um i'm sure my audience appreciates it and we're going to end here today thank you for supporting varm blog if you would like more you can find our stream on youtube under my name, C. Derek Barn. You can also find us on Patreon, where you can subscribe for early audio access, additional shows, unexpurged audios, Q&As with me on video, and other perks, such as access to our archives, etc. There are three levels of support. One level even gets you on Patreon shows. Occasionally here you will hear shows done with other creators. I hope you enjoy them. We'd like to thank our producer, Paul Channel Strip, and Bitter Lake and Jason Miles for making our intro and exit music. And thank you for all you do. If you can't support us financially, you can support us by leaving a review on iTunes or your pod catcher choice. Have a great evening.